pray with me, please? God, it was no great thing for you to say, let there be light, and then there was light. And so with the Apostle Paul, we ask that the God who said, let there be light in the darkness, let this same God bring light into our hearts of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds from your word, that we behold marvelous things in it, that as we gaze upon it and as we look this morning at the wonder of creation, that we would be overawed with your glory. So like Moses this morning, our prayer is this, show us your glory. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Three weeks ago, the New York Times ran a story with quite the eye-catching headline. The headline ran, the story of our universe may be starting to unravel. The article was written by a pair of astrophysicists from the University of Rochester and Dartmouth, respectively. Part of the article reads, not long after the James Webb Space Telescope began beaming back from outer space its stunning images of planets last year, astronomers, though dazzled, had to admit that something was amiss. Eight months later, based in part on what the telescope has revealed, it's beginning to look as if we may need to rethink key features of the origin and development of the universe. The web images reveal that some of the very large galaxies formed really fast in too short a time, at least according to the standard model. This was no minor discrepancy. The finding is akin to parents and their children appearing in a story when their grandparents are still children themselves. The authors go on to note that this is only one in a growing list of problems confronting the standard model of, cos of cosmology, the theory of the origin of the universe. In fact, as more data continues to come in, the less believable the present naturalistic assessment of the standard model becomes. They go on to write, quote, physicists and astronomers are starting to get the sense that something may be really wrong with the model. It's not just that some of us believe we might have to rethink the standard model of cosmology. We might have to change the way that we think about some of the most basic features of our universe, a conceptual revolution that would have implications far beyond the realm of science. Near the end of the article comes this telling statement. It is not obvious, to say the least, how such revolutionary reconsiderations of our science might help us better understand the cosmological data that is presently flummoxing us. Part of the difficulty is that the data themselves are shaped by the theoretical assumptions of those who collect them. Isn't that interesting? They conclude, it would necessarily be a leap of faith to step back and rethink such fundamentals about our science. A leap of faith indeed. For decades, science has told us that there is a perfectly reasonable, a perfectly plausible, entirely natural explanation for the origin of the universe, an explanation to which all of the data points, that the question is essentially closed, that it's just now a matter of continuing to work out and investigate the finer 
details. But now yet again, confidence that seemingly is completely assured has been demonstrated to be entirely misplaced. And all that is left is confusion. Confusion and uncertainty and unanswered big questions about where everything came from. And in light of that, how we can even do science at all. But we have no such confusion. We have no such uncertainty. Because we know the answer to the question. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This morning, we continue our new series through the book of Genesis, Foundations, which will take us over the next couple of months through the book in the five major movements, as we shared last week, that form the book of Genesis. The movements of creation, corruption, judgment, promise, and finally plan. This morning, we are going to launch now into the first major movement of the book, the account of creation. And the creation account runs from chapter 1, verse 1, until the end of chapter 2. And that's actually going to be the focus of the next several weeks of our study. We're going to be moving a little bit slower through this first section of the book. And as we jump into the text this morning, a text that has been variously understood, misunderstood, and hotly debated over the years, I actually want to begin by providing you with two presuppositions or two guiding beliefs that I have that are going to shape how I approach interpreting this text. So, assumption number one, I believe that the genre of the book of Genesis and the genre of Genesis chapter one is historical narrative and should be read as accounting for the literal historical account of God's creation of the world. Now, one of the dominant features of Hebrew narrative is something that's called the Vav consecutive. And I can see your faces are just glazing over right now. We're not going to be here long, but this is is actually important. A lot of people, though willing to say that parts of the book of Genesis might be historical narration, say that the Genesis chapter 1 is something else. It's some sort of creation myth. But the key feature of Hebrew narrative is what's called the Vav consecutive. Vav is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when the letter Vav is prefixed to a word, when it's placed at the front of the word, it adds the conjunction and. And when the Vav with a particular vowel is placed on the first word of the first sentence, it is known as what's called a Vav consecutive. The Vav consecutive is best translated and then. It is used to mark a sequence of consecutive events in a narrative. And then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's a key grammatical structure that is used to indicate to the reader we are now in historical narrative. As we consider the book of Genesis, we find in chapter 1 that Genesis 1 is littered with a whole series of Vav consecutives. In fact, if you look, and we're going to put this up on the screen, at the opening section of the book of Genesis, you'll see highlighted there, all of those highlights are all Vav consecutives. Nearly every single verse beginning with the key feature that in Hebrew marks the genre of historical narration. This, in other words, is indicating from Moses to the reader that he is providing a historical account, not a creation myth. The commentator Victor Hamilton observes Genesis does not use the language of myth in its narration of the creation story. Genesis 1 could not be written 
with a more anti-mythical basis, end quote. Assumption number two. I believe that the most consistent way of reading the text results in affirming that Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3 describe events that transpired over seven consecutive literal 24-hour days. I recognize that there are many godly Christian men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who disagree with that belief and who have different interpretations about the length of time and the length of days that are described in Genesis chapter 1. Many of them would point to the fact that the word for day, the Hebrew word yom, can mean a literal 24-hour day, and it can also mean an extended or even indefinite period of time. It has that semantic flexibility. Moses, in fact, uses the word yom in both senses throughout the book of Genesis. Sometimes you see he is clearly referring indisputably to a 24-hour period of time, and other times he is equally indisputably referring to an extended or indefinite period of time. So Moses does use this word both ways throughout the book of Genesis. But despite that, in Genesis chapter 1, I don't think that the meaning of this term is ambiguous. There are several reasons for that, but I'd like to give you just two this morning. First is because the word day in Genesis 1 is routinely accompanied by the phrase, and there was morning and there was evening on that day. Now, I'd suggest to you this. If Moses was trying to express that these were, in fact, 24-hour literal days, then it is hard to imagine a more literal way of conveying that than by saying there was morning and there was evening on that day. Conversely, on the flip side, it is hard to imagine a more confusing way to explain to the reader that this is an indefinite period of time than by adding to a word that can mean a literal 24-hour period of time There was evening and morning on that day. If Moses is trying to say these are just indefinite periods of time, it it would be very confusing for him to add that phrase. He seems to be, in trying to intentionally indicate to the reader something about the length that he is employing when he uses the word yom. The second reason that I have is that when God creates the constellations, the sun and the moon in day four, we read this. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Moses says that the sun and the moon separate the seasons and the days and the years. The sun, he says, is to rule the day. The moon is there to rule the night. He's clearly here describing the solar and lunar cycles that comprise a 24-hour day. So to then suggest that he is using the term day to mean something else in verse 19 than what he has been using this word to mean in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 with apparently no, nothing in the text that indicates that he is suddenly using this word to mean something else is to my point of view a deeply flawed exegetical approach. There is nothing in the text that, that suggests that he is suddenly departing from how he has just been using that word in the preceding four verses. 
And so I believe that Genesis chapter 1 should be read as historical narrative and that it describes events that took place over literal consecutive 24-hour days. With those understandings in mind, let's now dive into our text this morning. And here's the big idea that we need to capture this morning. God's creation shouts God's everlasting glory. And you and I are called to glorify this creator God. In pursuit of that thought, here is the first big truth that emerges from our text this morning and from the opening chapter of the Bible. Number one, creation reveals God's power, authority, and majesty. In order to appreciate that truth, I'd like to make three observations with you from the opening 13 verses of chapter 1. So observation number one, God created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We considered last week the issue of God's own self-existence, that He alone exists uncreated before space and before time. But that everything else, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in every dimension, in every realm, in every sphere of existence, everything else was created. And that includes the matter that God would later form into the world as we have it today. The matter did not exist prior to God or it did not exist contemporaneously with God In the beginning, before anything else was, God alone existed. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way in Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made of the things that are visible. In other words, God did not take a bunch of matter that was just floating around in the primeval ether and then use it to fashion his world. Instead, every atom, every particle of matter was produced by the creative act of God. The theological term for this is the Latin expression ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. Which tells us something about the quality of the universe. When I grew up, I used to go over to my grandma's house, and she'd often have the Food Network on TV. That was, like, was always running. And they had a show on the Food Network called Chopped. The basic premise of the show Chopped was that each contestant chef was given a box that was filled with a set of mystery ingredients. Now, the catch of this show was that each chef needed to make an entree, a, a, a main course, out of whatever those mystery ingredients were. They needed to be featured in the dish. But the the real trick was those mystery ingredients normally had nothing to do with each other. You would never make a dish and put these ingredients together. That was the the great challenge. They put things in there like a box of brownie mix and a salmon filet and say, make an entree out of that. So predictably, there were some nasty results that resulted from those dishes because the chefs were doing the best that they could with the ingredients that they had to work with. The creation of the universe was nothing like that. God did not do the best that he could do with a random box of raw materials that he had to work with. 
He didn't fashion some hodgepodge world that was limited by the raw materials that he had at his disposal. The universe, in its every particular, was created from nothing and therefore it corresponded precisely to God's exact purpose. Everything that exists finds its ultimate source in the being of God. Observation number two. God is a God who calls order out of chaos. Read with me Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the earth from the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning on the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in, each, in which is their seed according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning on the third day. Verse 1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then verse 2 fleshes out and explains to us that at first when God created these heavens and earth, he created the elements from which he would later fashion the world. And it was at first then a turbulent chaos. The earth we read was formless and void in the very beginning. The cosmos, as yet unlit with stars, was but a dark expanse. There was darkness over the face of this great deep, and there were restless waters. And all of these were confusedly mixed together. The expression for formless and void there in the text is the remarkable Hebrew expression, tohu vavohu. It means confusion, chaos, emptiness, futility. Because the cosmos in its first hour was a confused, turbulent, empty chaos. But over this chaotic, confused mass of earth and sea and expanse, we read that the Spirit of God is there, the Ruach Elohim, and He is there hovering. That word for hovering is the same expression that will later be used of an eagle who is protectively covering its nest. It's, it's sheltering its eggs with its wings. Same expression. Of course, that's an image that is going to be later used, a metaphor that's going to be developed throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. And here the image is of the Spirit of God protectively covering this fledgling creation that is about to be brought to life. Because God is not content to leave His creation a formless and void, empty chaos. Because instead, 
God begins to call order from this chaos. The first three days, God forms and he orders his creation. So day one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Where before there was only darkness over the face of the deep, now suddenly there is an explosion of light. Light that is as of yet not contained in any sun or in any star, but light that simply everywhere is. Light that radiates and finds its source in the person of God himself. Think about when you have sat for some time in a dark room, a truly pitch dark room. Your eyes gradually grow accustomed to the darkness, and then someone comes in and they turn on the light switch, and your eyes are instantly blinded by the paltry light that is being thrown from a 40-watt bulb. So imagine what it must have been like when God threw on the lights of the universe. An explosion of light. One moment the cosmos is a vast darkness, the next there is light everywhere. Robert Jastrow is the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, and he's also the chair of the Mount Wilson Observatory, a chair that was formerly held by Edwin Hubble. Mr. Jastrow is a self-proclaimed agnostic, meaning that he doubts or at least is uncertain of the existence of God. He certainly is by no description a Christian. And yet Mr. Jastrow writes this, Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let there be light, and there was light. He goes on to say, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer its highest peak. And as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Amen. Let there be light, and there was light. And God takes the light, and he takes the darkness, and he separates them, and he names them. Day and night, God forms, and then he orders. That's the first day. Then day two, we read that God divides. He divides the vault of the heavens from the waters that are below. He establishes a division between heaven and earth, or what will become sea and sky. The vast expanse that is our cosmos, whose outermost reaches we have not yet come close to discovering, God here in a single moment forms. God orders, and he forms again. Day three, God separates the land from the waters. Where before there was this confused mixture of water and land, God now delineates land from water and he establishes the limits of the ocean. He names the land earth. He names the water seas. Now we need to pause here for just a moment to consider. To consider the power and immensity of God. Who in a moment fashions continents and mountain ranges and who in an instant fills the oceans with their 352 quintillion gallons of water, who determines the depth of the seas more than 35,000 feet beneath the surface. That's more than six and a half miles down at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. 
who spreads these waters across the globe, an expanse of more than 139 million miles, and every square inch of which has been determined by God. Where were you, God requires of Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here your proud waves shall be stayed. And then this earth in cooperation with these waters from these God causes to produce all manners of vegetation. God formed and he ordered and he fashioned all of these things in order to prepare his world for life. Our God is a God who calls order out of chaos. Observation number three, when God speaks, things happen. There is a repeated expression that occurs eight times throughout this creation account. Vayomer Elohim, and God said. And that expression is frequently accompanied by the follow-up statement, and it was so. God speaks and a universe is formed. God speaks and continents shift into their right place. God speaks and oceans appear. God speaks and the limits of deep space emerge. God speaks a word and a world comes into being. And the creation, the scripture tells us that in some mysterious way it is God the Son, the second person of the triune God, who is the divine word, the divine logos, through whom the world is created. But as we read in the scripture reading from John this morning, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or as the Apostle Paul writes of the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That through the Son, the Father created the world, and through the Son, the universe is sustained and is held together. Now, not only did the cosmos come together at the first by the word of God, but that it is held together every moment, moment by moment, by that same all-powerful word. Little wonder then that at a word from Christ, peace be still, that wind and water obeys him. For they recognize in his voice the word who called them into their first existence. When our God speaks, it is done. When our God commands, every created being Every organism, every element, every piece of matter, every atom, every natural law, they all instantly obey and conform themselves to his purpose. 
Everything that has ever come into existence finds its source, exists only because God wills it. And everything that remains in existence remains only because God sustains it. God speaks a word, and there is a world. Two quick thoughts of application then before we move on. What response before the power and glory of God revealed in creation? What response can we offer except to stand in awe and praise? What are we left to do other than to proclaim, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies? We, you and I, are built for worship. We are built for this. We are created for this. And when we look at the awesome display of God's greatness, the heavens declaring His glory, the skies proclaiming the work of His hands, creation shouting of the glory of its Creator, it should recalibrate our hearts to do what you and I were created to do, to glorify and to glory in our Creator. Second, when we reject the God of order, we embrace the chaos of sin. Is our world today filled with chaos and confusion? You look around and there's so much conflict, so much brokenness everywhere. But beyond that, there is deep confusion everywhere. Confusion about things like what makes a man or a woman a man or a woman? Confusion about the sacredness of life or about marriage or about sexuality. You name it, and our culture is confused about it. I saw a headline this week about a gathering of hundreds of people in New York City who identify as dogs. And as people reject the God of order, and as they reject His created order, we descend into tohu vavohu, into confusion and emptiness and futility and chaos. Because when we reject God, we embrace the chaos of sin. That's true, by the way, not only of a society and a culture. It's true of our individual lives as well. And by the way, we can't miss this. That when God rises to judge the sinful... And when he rises to judge his world, he judges the world by bringing chaos and confusion upon it. We're going to see still to come in Genesis that when God judges the world, that he does so by reverting it to a chaos. And then in Genesis, we will also see that when God rises to frustrate the plans of man, he does so by bringing their plans to a confusion. God not only is able to bring order out of chaos, but when He wills in judgment, He brings tohu vavohu down upon those who rebel against Him. And so we must understand that creation in its every respect reveals God's power, His authority, and His majesty. Truth number two from our text this morning. Creation not only reveals God's power, authority, and majesty, but creation reveals God's goodness and His infinite wisdom. We already read at the beginning of the sermon the account of the creation of the stars and constellations on day four. 
through verse 19. So we're going to pick up our text here in verse 20. And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. The birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have you ever looked at a piece of art and the sheer size and scale of the thing is unbelievably impressive? You're just taken aback by the sheer scale of the work. But then as you get closer and as you're able to look more closely, your breath is taken away by the fine detail that has gone into this piece of art. So God, like an artist, on the first three days of creation has prepped a massive canvas one that rightly takes our breath away. But now, in the last three days of creation, he will fill in the finer details of that canvas that truly makes his creation a masterpiece. In the opening three days, God forms the universe. In the final three days of creation, God fills the universe. And if the forming of the universe reveals to us God's greatness and his power and his majesty, then in filling the universe... God informs us of his goodness and of his wisdom. And we're going to see this in a number of patterns that begin to emerge in the text. So here's pattern number one. The ordering of the creation days reveals an intentional design. So the first three days of creation each correspond to one of the final three days of creation. So on day one, God separates the light from the darkness. He calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. And then on day four, God creates the stars in the constellation. He fills this void and he provides them for the measurements of this times and the seasons and the days that he has already appointed. Then on day two, God creates a division between sea and sky. And then on day five, God fills the sky with birds and he fills the seas with all manner of marine life. On day three, God separates the earth from the waters and he causes plant life to grow. And then on day six, God fills the earth with living creatures and then he creates man to rule over all creation in the earth. You see, God lovingly orders his creation so that each successive act of creation prepares the way to facilitate the life that God is bringing to his creation. Each day is paired with another, one that lays the canvas, the other that performs the brushstroke of mastery. There's no haphazard, there's no random, there's no stream of consciousness creation that is taking place here. 
It is a deliberate and intentional process and one that expresses the profound wisdom and care of God. And it is one that expresses the fact that our God is a God who delights in life. He prepares the world precisely so that he can fill it with living things. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. And he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. God forms and orders his world in order to fill it and to fill it with living things. And to that end, he blesses them. Pattern number three, God designs his creator, or pattern number two, excuse me, God designs his creatures to flourish. In the creation of the birds and of the marine creatures and then of the mammals, there's this repeated phrase that just keeps recurring again and again and again. They were created according to their kind. In other words, God fashioned each creature to flourish within the particular environment that they were placed in and among others of their kind. These creatures did not evolve from lower organisms over hundreds of millions of years into higher life organisms. They were created according to their kind. They did not need to evolve over so long periods of time in order to survive in their environments. They were fashioned to thrive in their environments and to reveal the glory and the creativity of their designer. Take, for example, for just a moment, the elephant. You know, the trunk of an elephant weighs three to four hundred pounds. The elephant needs to move that massive trunk a whole lot every day because every day an adult elephant needs to eat 400 pounds of food and consume 60 gallons of water. So that trunk needs to be moving all of the time in order for the elephant to live. It's a massive engineering problem, especially when you consider the, the front of the trunk, the, the place where the trunk is placed on the front of the creature's face. It's not exactly the optimum place for, for leverage. So in order to move that trunk, the elephant is equipped with an interlocking network of more than 100,000 muscle groups. 100,000. Not only to be able to move this massive 400-pound trunk, but to be able to move it with precision and even dexterity. The elephant did not evolve over hundreds of millions of years for this. The elephant was created for this. Or take, for example, some of the unbelievably migratory processes in many of the creatures in our world. Uh, yesterday, I ran an adventure race with myself and Matt Thompson, and part of that race is orienteering. You're in the woods with a compass. And I found out, yet again, how very easy it is to quickly lose your way over even short distances. We're talking just a couple of miles apart. In fact, for a little while, our, our hearts completely stopped when the compass malfunctioned. The needle wasn't moving, and we were flicking that thing as hard as we could to get it to move we could not figure out where on earth we were going without it. But think about the monarch butterfly. Its head is smaller than the head of a pin. And yet somehow in the capacity of the monarch butterfly is the capability to travel accurately a distance of greater than 3,000 miles in order to achieve its southward migration. With precision, even while it's being blown hundreds of miles off course by the winds that beset it. Or think about Arctic terns. 
These birds fly more than 50,000 miles in their annual migration. That's going around the globe twice with precision and with accuracy. Or sea turtles who complete a multi-year migration over 10,000 miles to return to the exact same beach to lay their eggs where they were born decades before. How does that happen? Hundreds of millions of years? No, they were created for this. The unique and often incredibly complex reproductive processes of each of these kinds of creatures reveals that God is a God who delights in creating, and he is a God who delights in life-giving. And to that end, God blesses. He blesses the birds and the sea creatures. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and he will do the same for mankind in verse 28. Pattern number three. God again and again affirms the goodness of his creation. Now don't worry, next week we're going to be coming back and we're going to be diving into far greater detail into verses 26 through 31. We're actually going to be looking for the next three weeks at what it means to be human. We're going to be looking at those verses as well as chapter 2. So we're going to be coming back to this. But notice, at least for today, that after each day of creation that Moses says, God saw that it was good. God speaks his creation into existence. Everything that exists, therefore, exists according to his will and to his word. And then in surveying the result of his creation, God pronounces it to be good. It not only meets with God's approval, but because the creation comes from God, it is sourced in his own goodness. And on the sixth day, God creates mankind, the man and the woman. He fashions them. In his image, they're the crown jewel of his creation. He blesses them. He shows them how he has provided for them. He commands them to multiply. And then he commissions them to reign and rule over his creation as his vice regents. And then God steps back. He surveys the totality of his creation and he provides this assessment in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Everything else was good. Now it is very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. There was, in other words, nothing wanting in creation. Nothing that was left undone. Nothing that was left unfinished. And not only is nothing wrong with creation, but what God had made was very good. It was qualitatively excellent. It reflected the glory and the wisdom and the goodness of its creator. And what is then God's response to the perfection and completion of his creation? Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested the seventh day from all of his work. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So having made his creation, the maker rests. And this rest communicates three things. Number one, it underscores that the work of the creation is finished. God does not now rest from creating because he's tired or fatigued or bored with creating. He rests because his assessment of his creation is correct. It is very good. It is complete. It is finished. Second, this rest establishes a pattern. A pattern of Sabbath rest that communicates that we are created to know, to worship, and enjoy God. 
God sets the seventh day apart and he declares it to be holy. Moses will later pick up on this in the book of Exodus when the fourth commandment is being given to keep the Sabbath to the Lord. In other words, the Sabbath is created for us as an invitation for rest and for fellowship in God. To find our delight in him and delight in what he has made. Delight in the creator and delight in his good gifts. It is a time that is set apart for worship and to enjoy our creator God. Now as new covenant believers, we are no longer under the Mosaic law. In other words, we are no longer required to keep the Sabbath as a formal observance because Christ, as we read, has become our Sabbath rest. We rest, in other words, in continual close fellowship with God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That Christ labored and then ceased from laboring because the work was finished. And so we rest in the Sabbath rest that Christ has now purchased for us. But the creation principle of a Sabbath rest from daily labor, a time set apart, a time to regularly reflect and enter into fellowship with God, to enjoy Him and enjoy His good gifts, is a valuable rhythm for our own lives. So the formal observance is gone, but the creation principle ought to remain. Number three, this rest establishes the ultimate hope, or we might say the eschatological hope, the future hope for creation, the hope of a coming rest. Because God's assessment that creation is very good is going to be quickly disrupted by the events of Genesis 3, of the fall and corruption and the curse. But the Bible does not end with a curse. The Bible ends with the promise in Revelation from the Creator who says, Behold, I am making all things new. Where he will establish a new creation. Where the dwelling of God will be eternally with his people. Where we will know, worship, and enjoy God forever. An eternal Sabbath rest. And so the Bible ends, or will end, where it begins. Where the people of God find their rest and their joy in the good God and in his good creation. God is not going to relinquish his purpose for his creation as a result of sin and the curse. He's not giving up upon it. He's not tossing it aside. Instead, he has committed to ransom and redeem it. So the beginning of the story informs us about the end of the story, of a hope for a renewed creation. In fact, we shouldn't really call it the end of the story at all because it will be world without end. Because the creation tells us that when God speaks, everything happens exactly according to his word. It's amazing, isn't it, that so many men and women in our society today can look around at creation and yet choose to reject the creator. That we can scrabble around for any explanation that we can lay our hands on that in some way denies that God is responsible for all that we see around us to go back to where we started this morning, that we are prepared to take a leap of faith in order to try to redeem our naturalistic scientific methods as long as we are able to hold on to the naturalism, the God denial that gets us there. Why? Why are we so adamant to refuse to give God the glory that belongs to him for his creation? And the reason is, the moment that we recognize who the creator is, we recognize who we are and our responsibilities 
to the one who made us. Because you see, the awesomeness of creation, the creation that shouts of God's glory should produce in every person, in every creature, three responses. Number one, worship. Worship because of who God is. Second, delight. Delight because of who God is. And third, obedience. Obedience because of who the Creator God is. Our thinking, our affections, our actions should be dominated by this thought when we survey this creation. How great thou art. Let's pray. Oh God, your creation sings and it proclaims your greatness. And yet we so often are tempted to try to deny your power and Godhead that it reveals. And yet for as much as we would so often seek to exalt our own names, to steal glory and appropriate it for ourselves that rightly belongs to you, the scripture tells us that if we will not sing your glory, that the rocks and inanimate things will break out in praise of the one who made them. And so, God, I pray that you would revive our hearts, recalibrate our affections, so that we would do what you created us for, to glorify and enjoy you forever. It is for your glory and our good that we ask it. Amen.